Hey, welcome to A Better Story Podcast. Got a conversation for you today with journalist, writer, Liz Lenz. We are talking about uh, Trump, religion, her divorce that came out of some of the intersection of those things, and how to grapple with uh, the complex realities of our life, at least in the United States right now, and in other uh, places across the globe who are experiencing similar things. She writes really, really beautifully about all of those topics and about her life uh, in her forthcoming book called Godland, which is available August 1st. So you can pre-order that now. There's a link in the show notes for that. It is uh, one of the best written, most compelling books I've read uh, probably this year. So you should absolutely pre-order that and check it out. You can hear more from her and see some of her writing at LizLens.com. She's been published uh, all over the place. Uh, Marie Claire... Columbia Journal Review, New York Times, ESPN, uh, you name it, she's probably written for that publication. So I think you're really going to enjoy this conversation. I uh, I included a little bit of the like pre-interview banter because it kind of ties back into some of what we talk about. So uh, if you want to skip our conversation about homeschool and Christian school, jean skirts, CCM music, and uh, all sorts of weird Christian cultural stuff, you can skip ahead to about the uh, probably like 13, 14 minute mark. That's where we start talking about the book and get into some of that stuff. But uh, make sure you pre-order this book. Really, really good stuff. And enjoy the conversation with Liz Lenz. Uh, another random thing. I saw on Twitter you met um, Sarah McCammon last night. Oh, yeah. Do you know her? I don't. Well, not really. I had kept up with her a little bit and mm-hmm. didn't realize who she was. But we went to the same tiny Christian school in Kansas Trinity? City. Uh, no, like high school, like oh, K oh. through 12 high school. Uh, but she was a couple years older than me. So I went to school with her sister and stuff and oh. I didn't recognize her last name. And then she wrote a piece on the crazy ass fundamentalist school that we went to. And I was like, yes. oh shit, that's, uh, Sarah Fowler was her maiden name. So anyway, weird random connections, but I, appreciate oh, what she's so to. yeah. So, um, she, uh, she had interviewed me for a story on Joshua Harris uh-huh. um, when he was doing his apology tour. <laughs> and I got, I mean, and I got connected to her that way. And I started like following her and we, she st- we started reading each other's stuff and realizing how much we had in common. Because yeah. I, I mean, I didn't, I mean, I, I didn't have the privilege of attending a crazy fundamentalist school because I was just homeschooled. So my whole life was a crazy <laughs> fundamentalist school. The fundamentalist Christian schoolers mock the homeschoolers, which we didn't realize the hierarchy of like how ridiculous <laughs> that was. But we're like, what a bunch of weirdo homeschoolers. And then everyone else is like, what a bunch of weirdo Christian schoolers. I know. It's so, I mean, but you know, you gotta have, you gotta have standards or there has to be a pecking order and. And uh, yeah, and so like we, I actually, so we've been following each other for a while and she was here in Des Moines um, doing a show, um, the It's Been a Minute show with Sam Sanders. And so I drove down uh, to meet her and then drove back. Um, it's it's like a two hour drive. Oh my gosh, uh, that's some commitment to go see her. Wait a I mean, look, I was I was there for it, but I um, it was really really fun. Um, I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. But that was the first time we'd met, and it was so funny because we were hanging out and like there was somebody they were like, "So you just know each other from the internet?" We're like, "Yeah." That's how it works. It's but, the, yeah, but it's she, like she, more than that a little bit. Like, yeah. it's a professional, like, 
you know, yeah, you're in the same yeah. profession. You're journalists. So. And, and I mean, you know this. There's a lot, I think, not a lot, actually, and this is probably why we're a smaller group, but there's there are women in writing who kind of came up in these similar backgrounds. And not always, but, like, came out of very religious backgrounds, but then perhaps don't do very religious writings. Or we do religious writing in a way that, like, questions it you know what i mean like questions our background and so i think that's the thing right because i'm sure there's there's a ton of writers who grew up very religious but like you know write freaking bible studies or whatever but like and then there's like this handful of women i think who like came out of these worlds and are like okay now what do i do with it and i think she's one and um uh, Amy Sullivan. I don't know if you know her. I've met her before a long yeah. time ago, but I don't know her well. Yeah. Yeah. She's great. And then I know Laura Turner, um, you know, of, uh, her dad's John Ortberg. Um, and then, you know, just like this small, yeah. I feel like it's a small handful of women and I admire them so much. Um, but yeah, I think we all kind of like, we find it. It's like, it's like ex homeschoolers too, right? You can kind of just like sniff each other out. And it's, it's a very, it's a very unique club. It's a weird, um, yeah. It's almost like being in the, the homeschool Christian school trenches together. Like, you know, there's a, an automatic like camaraderie. I feel like a little bit of like, Oh yeah, you were shamed terribly as a child as well. (laughs) Well, and I think it's also like you were shamed terribly but you're also not in that yeah. space anymore, right? So that also adds a – we think of that as shame. Like, again, like I live here in Iowa. I know a lot of people who grew up like me but do not think like me, you know, who still drink that Kool-Aid and are still just like, no, we you know, we will do exactly what was done to us, to our children, and this is how life is. And I think it is – and actually, I think I was looking at a statistic when I was reporting out the book. It didn't make it in, but I actually think we are in the minority of people who come out of these really uh, – I think, it was, you know, it was homeschoolers. I was trying to see if homeschoolers tend to homeschool, and I think that is the thing. Is it really? That kind of surprises me. Yeah. It does. It shocks me too. Um, and again, like I don't know. I don't remember who did the study. I mean, you know, it could have been like the homes. It could have been like Charles Dobson. You <laughs> yeah. know, like being like, oh, so you're saying homeschooling's a good idea? And you know, they're all like, yeah, we like jean skirts. And oh, you know, jean and skirts. There are so many. Anyway, we will go down the jean skirt rabbit hole. I mean, we could. We could. We that could. could be the. If you want to talk about jean skirts instead of the book for this podcast, we can spend an hour talking about the nuances. All I want to do is talk about homeschool fashion and Amy Grant. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for joining me. Uh, I think a lot of people today. would weirdly connect over that. but uh... I think so. No, no. I So a while ago, I wrote an essay about Amy Grant, and I think that has like sussed out a lot of people. I think a lot of people have like, been like oh it's you know like you're 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 one of my people you were also homeschooled you also remember when amy grant was like really scandalous 
Yeah. It's a good like litmus test for our shared trauma. It's right? true. It's true. Although I actually, I never got into like CCM, which I, that's my point wow. of like pride, but I got into like worse, like Christian ska and punk rock, which was no, just, that's none of that. Just okay. garbage. Yeah. So it's a, uh, again, just levels of shame and embarrassment to, I know. And I hate that like every time people are like, oh, Christian Rock, did you read that one John Jeremiah Sullivan essay? And it's like, yeah, we all did things, you know. Come on. There needs to be more. There just needs to be more. I don't. Yeah, Uh, I I can't even go back into that world. I will occasionally like go listen to a little of again and then I'll just turn it off and have a sad moment that that's what I was into and uh, move forward with my life. One of my good friends, I mean, she grew up very like uh, she grew up ELCA Lutheran, so it's not the same, but you know, some, not at all, Uh, you know, but like there was some overlap and now she is, um, she's finishing up her PhD from the Jewish theological seminary and like old Testament studies, but she's not, um, you know, she's like, she and her partner are very like agnostic sort of in their approach to religion. And she was, um, but one thing we shared in common was listening to a lot of, you know, Christian contemporary music when we were growing up, her out of choice, me out of like, I literally wasn't allowed to listen to anything else. And uh, she was saying that like, she can't, she couldn't turn off her brain from like examining every single like, theological assumption made in these songs and then understanding why they're so toxic and i was like oh no yeah that's how i am in church like anytime i go to church and hear any sort of like you know worship any song with like christian lyrics i can't like turn off the analytical part where i'm like but what uh what is this and yeah it's it's kind of a curse like it's (laughs) is that toxic masculinity (laughs) uh yeah and i do i don't go to church often but i do attend a very very liberal um elca church you know so they have like all the you know uh redone liturgy where it's like about social social justice and like um you know rethinking pronouns although they could probably do a little better on that and i'm sure they will um but like you know the like even that is still sometimes, you know, a little too much for me. I'm like, well, what are you saying? Like, this seems really... Yeah. Yeah. We would, um, at one of the churches that I co-pastored in Indiana, we would, I don't know if I should say this, uh, I don't even know if we're technically recording. We're recording, but what? This is just oh, like okay. a meandering interview, whatever. Um, yeah. We would illegally change the lyrics to, like, licensed songs because we're like, we're not going to say this collectively, but we want, we'll do is the rest. Is that illegal? Um, it's frowned upon. I don't like they could come at uh, churches for that. I believe. Would they sue you? I think so. But like, what kind of petty ass shit would that be? So I don't know. We uh, uh, we knew I mean... it, we knew it was probably not um, up to par, but it was also better yeah. than you know singing yeah, really no, like morbid. Be- dark yeah, lyrics. it's better than like singing songs you don't agree with. There was a time when. Yeah, I just would not, and I still don't. I a lot of those contemporary worship songs, I do not like to sing because, yeah, they'll just say things, and you're just like, I don't, I don't like these metaphors. This is toxic. Like, there's so much violent imagery, and you know, it's just it's so um, it's so patriarchal and patronizing, and 
you know, I think it actually like, and it's so limiting too. You know what I mean? It, and that's the problem. The problem is not like, the problem is not necessarily, well, the problem is these ideas about God, but the problem is, is like, they're so limiting to the idea of like what faith could be, you know? And so people are always like, well, you know, God's all powerful. So you just got to handle it. And it's like, no, he, if that's your idea, then like, then you need to like let go of gendered notions and let go of like ideas about capitalism, right? Like you got to let go of a lot of shit then if God's going to be as powerful as you think he is supposed to be. And I just like, it's so confining for people and I think for spirituality and it frustrates me um, towards the end of my marriage when I was going to this church and I didn't want to be going to the church, but we were trying to make it work and it I mean, clearly wasn't working, but I was just like, well, here's my compromise. I'll just, um, I'll just sneak out during worship and then read a book in the lobby so I don't have to hear the sermon. And I was so proud of myself. I was like, yeah, this is great. But then like people started being like, why are you sitting out in the lobby? I'd be like, oh, because I think this is theologically toxic. And they'd be like, oh, okay, have, have a nice day. And then they were going up to my husband and being like, did you know your wife thinks this church is theologically toxic? Because of course, you know, that's the way people approach it. Yeah, right? report to the boss to make sure that he can get Yeah, report to the tattletale, you know, <laughs> like, did you know your wife is doing this? And he, it wasn't. So it actually ended up causing more problems. But yeah. You tried. So. You could, I mean, I applaud the effort. It's... I did that for a really long time. Yeah, a really, really long time. Uh, but yikes. what are we going to do? Uh, well, should we talk about the book a little bit? Can we, yeah, we've been sure, talking around yeah. it, which uh, sure. yeah, it all it's all tied in. I feel like so. Yeah, it is all tied in. It yeah. is all tied in. Um, but we can keep like meandering through. So there's no yeah. um, conversations are never linear, and I appreciate that. So, <laughs> um, but one one of the, well, first let me say, um, I like I really really enjoyed this book. Like I get to. Um, I get, you know, readers copies of books and I get to like, that's one of my favorite things about interviews and podcasts is getting to read a bunch of books um, as and before they come out. And your book was like one of the most enjoyable reads I think that I've had all year. Like it was um, insightful and nuanced and uh, felt really like apropos to kind of what's, I don't know where we're at, or at least where I'm at right now. Um, So yeah, I was really actually pretty bummed that it ended. Like I like a a shorter book, but I was like, Oh, I wish this was still going. Like, I wish I could continue reading this, which I don't usually think. So gosh, thank you. Thank you so much. It's so scary to uh, publish a book and that, and especially one that's so vulnerable. Um, and, And then, you know, kind of send it out around to people and, you know, and then it just kind of feels like you're just constantly naked in front of the world. So it's like, and, you know, and, and since it's not officially out yet and it's only like copies are trickling places here and there. So I haven't, you know, heard a lot of feedback. And, uh, so it's, it's, um, it's, it's terrifying, but it's, thank you. I, I can imagine, but I, um, I was going to say something really like snooty, but I was going to say people have like good taste in books and they'll really enjoy it. But I, I will say I very much enjoyed it. I think other people oh, will too. Thank you. Um, this is, 
actually jumping ahead, but I, since you talked about being sort of terrified, I wondered, like, because you were so vulnerable in the book and you talk about your divorce and, like, yeah. your relationship with God, um, are you, like, is any of the worry in there about having to, like, do you mind talking about that that much? Like, I've, um, I am nowhere near, like, it's not, what I do doesn't get the reach that, that you do. Uh, but I've talked about grief a fair amount mm -hmm. out of some of my experience, which I don't regret. But then, like, I end up talking about grief more than I want to talk about grief. Yeah. So I wonder, like, do you does that resonate? How are you finding that? Are you concerned about that? I, You know, I've been thinking about this a lot because there's a lot of conversations out there about what we ask of women when they write you know and um and there's a lot of good criticism that says you know we expect women especially like essayists and nonfiction writers to kind of like perform their femininity or vulnerability on the page like there's that expectation and then as a result you know there's women get asked very personal questions in interviews you know and so there's i mean there's that side which i've been thinking a lot about but i also am some am somebody who consciously puts herself in the writing right like i did not set out to make my life part of the book when i sold that book i thought i was going to be married for forever um and uh and then during the reporting process, it all fell apart and it all felt so, um, it, all, it was all so related that I, I felt I could not, not put it on the page and not have an honest book. So, you know, and I think that like, so there's, you know, there's the whole criticisms about what we expect and ask of women, but I also feel for me, I'm making these very pointed choices to, and I hope it's all to say that the personal is political and that you can't separate our bodies from um, these bigger conversations that we're having. And in fact, when you do try to separate our bodies from and our experiences from these larger conversations, you do those conversations a disservice. And so, yeah, so I, um, I always kind of feel how am I going to approach this and how am I going to do it in a way that's like, yeah, sure. I put personal things out there and when I do it, I know exactly what I'm doing and I'm making a choice. Um, I'm not being forced to do this. Um, but yes, it's also like deeply personal stuff. And so um, it is a little scary to talk about, it, it, not scary, but like it is a little vulnerable to talk about. Um, but I'm, I think I'm just going to be okay. I think I'm just going to roll with it. Right. Yeah. You know, yeah. Just because I put it on there. Like I had this recently, this big profile of Tucker Carlson and I put in the divorce there because it came up in my conversation with him and I put it in there. So, and I've done a few interviews about that story and it always comes up and it's so fascinating to me how different interviewers handle the personal question. Cause I think it's something like as a society, we're really trying to do better with but we still haven't figured out exactly how. And I think maybe the answer is to just ask men more personal shit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, maybe that's it. But I know people disagree with me. Anyway, we're all on a journey. I'm fine with all questions. And if I didn't like a question, I just wouldn't answer it, yeah. right? Yeah. Like, the, the more conversations I have around um, social issues and gender in particular, 
The yeah. answer is always like men just need to get our shit together. Like that's usually <laughs> like at the end of the day to oversimplify it a little bit. Yeah. And I mean, I understand like I have uh, female friends who uh, just don't want to answer um, personal questions at all, but they're different kinds of writers. Yeah. Well, I think you making it so personal to me is what fat, what made it in part really compelling because I, uh, for a lot of us, I think you were hitting on something that we felt, but even in a more like um, pronounced way in the sense that like a lot of us who uh, are vehemently opposed to Trump have yeah. loved ones who are the total opposite and life yeah. feels really fragmented. Um, yes. And I don't know how to have like conversations with people I love and care about about it. Yeah. I don't know how to say like, I've lost respect for you as a person yeah. sometimes. Yeah. Uh, and so you bring it to the surface vulnerably and in like the, the most intimate relationship you had um, didn't give solutions, but it gave a lot of solidarity, which was really powerful. And I think that, I mean, that's still a question I haven't figured out. You know, I still live in this town. I still occupy this space. Um, he's a person I will, who will be in my life because we have kids together. Right. And, um, and so are my now ex in-laws and, you know, and, you know, I live in a town that's full of churches and a lot of people I know and love attend these churches and did vote for Trump. And so I think one of the one of the things about the election was this realization and it was a realization that came late because of privilege, um, because I'm like, you know, a middle class white lady. But it was just this realization that you can't separate the two, you know, when people are like, oh, I don't talk politics. It's like, well, you can say that because you can uh, insulate yourself from it with money and whiteness. But there's other people in the world whose whole being, just like every time they step outside the door, it's always political. If you're a queer body, if you're a person of color, like there's nothing you can do that doesn't make the way you take up space political because of the way we are, we've operated our country. And so I think that was just something I really wanted to be conscious of. One, my own privilege, but two, that you cannot separate. You can't just sit down and say, oh, I'm not going to be political because everything is political. And it's also very, very personal. And um, and and I think that was the thing. It was another thing that I really hoped to kind of like twist together was like these are not just these big hypothetical statistics about religion, but it's it has personal implications that affect people around us and we need to like grapple with that messiness. Yeah. Cause I, um, even though I grew up in cons politically conservative and religiously conservative environments, mm -hmm. there was always this cop out of like who you elect doesn't really matter until we start talking about abortion for some reason. Right. Um, <laughs> but that, yeah, that has sort of betrayed the privilege that I existed in and the sense of like, well, if it doesn't matter to me, that probably means that I am like sitting on the top of the entire hierarchy right now. Right. Um, and seeing how it does matter for a lot of people changes that drastically. 
Uh, and I think, uh, yeah, I think too, it's such a weird, right. You go to churches and they're like, well, Jesus is our king and we can't put our faith in the, you know, political leaders. We've, I mean, you heard that sermon. I've heard that sermon. I've walked out of that sermon because I'm done with it because it, yeah, it's this cop out that says I'm privileged. I'm white. I'm upper middle class. Vote for whoever you want unless it comes to, to abortion because that's not political. That's about morals, you know, and it's just like, you can't, it's intellectually dishonest. And again, if you say that you are a person of faith, you should be caring about other people and like trying to, you should be caring about other people and not insulating yourself from them. Right. So. Yeah. Well, it's, I think I've like, in trying to make sense of what the hell is happening right now. Um, like it's such a toxic brew of like escapism, masculinity, like over spiritualization. Like there are so many interweaving pieces to white evangelical like theology and outlook that it makes sense from like hindsight being 2020 and we, maybe we should have seen it coming, but maybe I just gave people too much credit and too much faith ahead of time it's it's kind of baffling in some ways which is where to me your book was really um compelling and helpful because you were looking at um this sort of like collective religious political personal experience uh and trying to do it in a very like humanizing way without letting anyone off the hook it seemed like like you were still i felt like you were still pissed off but you weren't dehumanizing anyone um yeah can you can you talk about that approach a little bit? Like I, it's one I can't muster up myself very well. So I, I wonder how you did it. <laughs> well, um, I don't. Um, I mean, I'm not. I, I'm still a bad person. I still sit in my <laughs> <laughs> sit in my house and like cuss people out constantly. But I do think it's harder when you have to live with people, right? I can't, I cannot escape this. Um, right after the election, when everybody was mocking liberal bubbles, I got so frustrated with that conversation because I was like, first of all, if you think you're in a liberal bubble, you're not because there are a lot of people who voted for Trump who you just don't have these conversations with, right? Because of privilege. And then second of all, I was like, that is not my lived experience. Like I wish I could, but because of who I am and the choices that I've made, I live in community with people who I find very difficult and they find me difficult and for very good reasons, (laughs) right? I mean, it goes back both ways um but I think like but I don't have a choice I can't move and um and I also but also I love people and I I I'm an extrovert um I like I I get anxious when I can't talk with people so I think there's like these conflicting things where, uh, right, like, we we don't want to be in tough situations. And it's okay. Like, I think it's totally fine to take time not to talk to people, right? It's totally fine to get the space you need. Because a lot of these conversations, 
are dangerous. Um, again, if you're a queer person, if you're a person of color, these are not theoretical issues. This is your body and your life on the line. And, um, and, and I think, um, I've heard from women too, and I had this experience where, um, also some of these conversations bring up things uh, like sexual abuse that you never had to deal with before and now all of a sudden you're in a conversation where you have to say the worst thing that happened to you to people who voted who would vote to take your rights away you know what i mean and that is so hard and you should not have to do that you should be able to live and be safe but also we are in a difficult world and how do you how do you treat people with respect but not without letting them off the hook and i think for me while writing the book um i um i i think what i wanted somebody told me when I was writing, when I was talking about writing about family and I was trying to learn how to do that, somebody said, give the worst characters, and they meant like the worst people, the best lines, right? So I think, and it was like the idea of like, you are not always the hero, you suck. And so if you're gonna talk about how other people suck, at least cop to your own uh, shittiness. And so, um, I mean, I hope I did that. There were some moments in the book where I was like, oh, my God, like, I, I'm bad because of my, my passivity and my deep desire to make everybody get along um, has, has, uh, is part of the problem. Um, so maybe that's the way to do it is not to – and I don't think that's like a both sides kind of a thing. I just think it's honesty, and I think – and I talk, I think about this a lot because I often in my professional life write profiles of people who aren't usually considered awesome, like uh, Richard Spencer, uh, alt-right guy, Tucker Carlson. Um, I'm working on a few others. And I think the thing is not, like people are just people and you have to grapple with all of it, you know, and you don't have to have the answer a wonderful writer friend of mine i was struggling with a a profile and i i was like i don't i don't know the answer i don't know how to she's like you don't have to you don't have to have the answers to everything you just have to show you did the work to get there and i think that's so true about like life we go in and we're like, what's the answer? How do we fix it? But we still just haven't grappled. We haven't done the work. And I, and I think that maybe there's something to that. And I, you know, I often, every day I pick up my kids from school, they go to a private Christian school and I sit around the picnic table with these women who, who say things that, you know, even if it's about like teaching girls about their periods or something, I fundamentally disagree with them on every level but our kids are best friends so how do i live with like moral integrity intellectual integrity but also not be a shithead (laughs) 
<laughs> I don't know. And I mean, it would be interesting if, I mean, there have been times when I'm just like, I can't do this today, you guys. And, uh, and that's fine. But, um, and there's also times when I say like really aggressive things and then they're, cause it's the Midwest and they're all just like, okay, that's great. So piano lessons. And then I'm just like, but you know, then there's other days where it's just fine and lovely and we have a good time and I don't know how to feel about any of that. So that was a very long way to say, I don't know the answer, but I think we have to do the work. And I think our national dialogue is trying to skip ahead to the answer when we haven't done the work. Yeah, that's a good point. And you're one of the things that, um, is helpful for me that you just did was uh, like zoom out and give some perspective on it because I don't want to have those conversations. But the worst thing that happens to me is I ruin family vacation. Like I am not having my rights infringed on in any meaningful way. Like my body is not in danger. So it's really just like mild discomfort on a Florida beach is like worst (laughs) case scenario for me, which going back to like shitty person, like how, yeah, how dare I? Not want to have a beachside hard conversation. Well, there's like, yeah, there's differing expectations. And I think I think more of us should be having more uncomfortable conversations if we can. Right. So like and this is not I'm not telling like people who are in danger to have those conversations. I'm telling those people to get safe and be safe and do what you have to do. If that means, you know, not talking to your family and, you know, living where you need to live, do it. Be safe. The first rule is being safe. But then I think there's a lot of us thinking of the 53% of, you know, white women who voted for Trump, especially that like, yeah, what is the implication of these conversations? You have a bad dinner? You know what I mean? Was it going to be that great if you're all just repressed and eating, you know, tater tot casserole quietly while the forks scrape against the bowls? Um, Like, we all, I know that conversation. Yeah, that was very specific. It felt like that conversation has happened a couple times. Uh, never. What are you talking about? <laughs> um, <laughs> but like, yeah, it's like, was it ever going to be that great? And also... Is it, is that the kind of life you want to live? I had those conversations and it wrecked my life, you know? Um, So I think I know what I'm talking about when people say it's hard. Um, But I also deeply don't know what I'm talking about because my life has never been on the line. But yeah, but I think to to be people of integrity, I think we've got to push back more, especially if I, I think that's what it means to be an ally is to have those conversations, you know, with our people. There's, there's a chapter in the book where I go to this um, conference for people of color on faith and it's wonderful, but I walk in and the whole thing is like, who are your ancestors? And the, who do you bring into the room with you? And I was like thinking of my grandmas, like in their polyester, you know, pantsuits, like chain smoking and like sh- swearing people out, like cussing people out. I don't know why I failed on that one. Uh, but like, you know, I was just like, oh my God, these are my people and I can't get away from them. So I got to deal with them. Yeah. That's so interesting. Um, you said, you you said something that was like, uh, pointed and powerful in there that I, uh, 
want to touch on and you don't have to answer, obviously. Sure. Um, you talked about, you know, these conversations like wrecked your life. Um, kind of a shitty question, but one that I feel like I should ask. Do you, would you do anything differently around those conversations? Or do you feel like you even could have done anything differently around those conversations? Um, no, I think, no, I don't think so. Um, no, I think that, um, you know, we were married for 12 years and, um, and had those conversations in a lot of different ways. Um, I do think, I do think something I did in the beginning and, um, and that's just who I was then. And it, I was, it was a product of how I was raised. It was a product of how I was expected to operate in the world and a product of my personality. You know, I'm not going to blame it all on my parents and, you know, shitty churches. Like I'm a people pleaser. I like it when people get along. I like, you know, I like it when everybody's happy. Um, that is just who I am. I think I'm a three on the Enneagram. I, it's, somebody made me take the test once and I was like, <laughs> that's the level of engagement I have also had. And I'm a nine, which yeah. is also a people pleaser. So is it? Yeah. Okay. Maybe I'm not a three. I don't know. Yeah. Look at you. <laughs> look at you reassessing to, to, uh, I don't know. Yeah, maybe there, people will be listening to this podcast. They'll be like, "She's not a three. That's garbage." And like, people feel very no. strongly about the enneagram, and I don't have strong you know, enough feelings. It's only, but it's only like Christians and ex-Christians. It's true. I mean, why? I, I mean, there's something there we gotta look at. But um, so I think there were a lot of conversations that I avoided. Um, for many, many years, um, because I, I knew what the answer would be. And I think that's a thing. I know a lot of, I know a lot of my white ladies out there have the same experience where it's like, no, you know, the answer, you don't have to ask the question, or you don't have to push the conversation, you know, deep down inside of you where it's going to go. So you're always stepping around the landmine always stepping around the landmine and um and i'm sure there's we we bend and break our bodies to avoid you know the the bombs in our life when i don't know just set them off (sighs) just blow it up it's hard but it's way better on the other side yeah i mean i have never experienced anything close to what you articulate and what a lot of people, uh, a lot of women, uh, I think yeah. are living in those situations, but living in any sort of like in office, in authenticity mm-hmm. can feel really suffocating. So I can't imagine like that amplified to the level of, um, marriage and oppression and politics and all those sort of things kind of coming together in a volatile sort of thing that, yeah, it seems like it does have to blow up eventually. Eventually. Yeah. Um, well, we can, I'll pivot off your, all the personal questions. Uh, sure. We can pivot back if you, if you want to, you can take it wherever you want. But because um, it's, the book isn't just about your marriage and your personal life. It's about some of these like broader religious, social kind of Midwestern ideals. Um, this is a really large question, but as someone who grew up in the Midwest myself, it's something I sort of ask myself and don't have a good answer to, but what do you feel like Midwestern morality 
looks like, at least in your spheres and your circles? Oh, that's such a good question. I think when we talk about religion in America, there's this real tension between like actual faith as it is practiced or taught by people and then moral capital, right? So the performance of being religious. And I don't even mean like going to church. I mean like we have tied it up in concepts of nationalism and capitalism to where sometimes it's to where we have these two very different things. And I often think when we have conversations, it's easy to tell who's talking about one or the other. When people are like, faith is on the decline. And they're like, well, you're talking about people specifically showing up into churches. 80% of Americans still believe in God. It's like something crazy, like 75% still believe God had some sort of role in creation. So you're going to tell me that faith is dead in America try again but like but like but I think what we're having are two different conversations about actual like but in a pew religion and then moral capital so you asked what does morality look like midwestern morality look like I think it looks a lot like moral capital wrapped up in a performance of, um, you know, I, I've got sports. <laughs> like, I, I, I like, I think, I think it's a very specific thing. It's sports, it's school, it's, um, patriotism, and it's all tied up to these concepts of this is what a God-fearing American looks like. Um, and so, uh, and, and we just, we don't question it, but our, our morality is still fundamentally, you know, cisgendered, heterosexual, in a relationship, kids, you get a couple of kids, you get a job, and these are the markers of your morality, Right. And like, and so if, and that's your moral capital. And if you have those things, then um, you get along well. You can move freely between spaces. It's when you start to deviate from those that it gets a little harder and a little harder. And, and, and I say deviate like it's a choice. People don't have a choice, you know, if they're like born, you know, black or trans or something like that. So, like, it's not really a choice. It's just, I'm sorry, you don't fit. And I think for the people for whom it works, it works great. And congratulations. But there's the whole rest of the world for whom it doesn't work. So that that I think is like, um, I think it's not, that's not just Midwestern. I think that kind of concept of morality um, op- is for most of the middle of America, right? Like in, if you if you can conform to those expectations and fit those roles that um, you're allowed to live a life of relative ease. Um, Yeah, that's, that's really interesting and compelling. Um, It reminds me of a conversation that my wife had one time in, I think she was in St. Louis because we, when we first got married, we lived in St. Louis and she was back visiting for some sort of like bridal shower or something, a wedding maybe. Um, and with some of the people that her family went to church with and somewhere in there, she said, uh, she was pursuing a doctorate degree 
and she may not want to have children. Uh, and the immediate response of someone was, have you told your husband this? <laughs> Which, yeah. Like talking about conforming to those social structures and being able to even fit in. And that's such yeah. a, I mean, I don't want to, she handled it really well. I don't want to downplay her experience, but that's right. such a minor one compared to like um, being a person of color. Like I've, I have never seen stronger reactions than I saw out of white people in St. Louis uh, post Ferguson. Like, mm-hmm. I was like, shit, we have like racist issues that are not just bubbling to the surface. They were like overflowing, like the vitriol that was expressed towards mm-hmm. black bodies that were upset in the streets. There was no tinge of empathy. It was just a, an automatic sort of villainization. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and I mean, we were talking earlier about like bending and breaking our bodies around landmines. Those landmines are always there. I hate this. I hate it when people are like, oh, we're all so much more racist now. It's like, no, we're not. We're just not polite about it anymore. Yeah. Right. Like, it's like, we're not like America's has always been racist. You talk about having conversations on the beach. I have two of my best friends in the entire world. I met them in college. They're wonderful women. Last year, after I turned in this book, we went on a little trip together. It was lovely, but I made one of them cry <laughs> because I went on this rant. I was like, America's always been bad. You're just waking up to it now. <laughs> She started crying, and I oh, I still feel so bad about that. But um, but that I mean, but I don't, I don't, I. That's what I think. And so yeah, you're yeah. saying like all this like vitriol and rage. It's it, it only ever felt nice if you could walk around it. And some people just never have been able to walk around it because their body is the bomb, right? Yeah. Their, their sexuality is the bomb. And so while the rest of us can just like meander around it and whatever, we're forced to confront it, get really upset because it hurts our feelings. Like, well, you know, uh, get a clue. Yeah. Like, yeah. Get it. It's too, I mean, it's 2019 by a vowel. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what that's. I, d- I didn't get the metaphor, but I, it felt appropriate. So. It felt Right. I'm just going to stick with it. I like it. Um, Something that like feels tied to Midwestern morality that you said and you wrote about um, maybe one of my favorite lines of the book. uh, You said nostalgia is suffering, which as someone who grew up in the Midwest, like that's something that I saw and even experienced in my own psyche for a long time. Yeah. Um, Can you talk about like how you've seen that and what that actually looks like? Yeah, so uh, uh, suffering or nostalgia or just that idea of it altogether. That idea altogether or wherever you feel like taking it in this moment too. So like we all, we, you know, we all have nostalgia, right? Like uh, for times and places in our lives um, that we believe were good, um, or wonderful or meaningful in a way to us that is more mythology than it is facts. Um, and so, so we all have that. And, but I, but I think it, I mean, so it's, it's just part of being human. 
it's the Kantian hammer, right? It's neither good nor bad. It just is the thing and what you do with it. And if you use it as a weapon, then it becomes a weapon. But, um, but I do think the I, nostalgia is at its core a longing and longing is connected to suffering, right? Because if you're longing for something else, then that means that you, you need something else or you want something else. And so, I mean, I think we all perform that in its own way. I think as a country, as a whole, well, maybe not a country as a whole, but I, but you know, um, conservatives, Republicans, uh, and not even all of them, you hear this constantly, just go visit your grandma and she'll be like, well, back in my day, we all went to church, you know, it's like, well, not really grandma, but that, okay, that's, <laughs> um, but like, yeah, so we just like, like that, I think that's a thing where it's like, oh, there used to be a time when men were men and women were women and churches were churches and hamburgers were meat and, you know, like cheese was cheese and everybody was happy and you're like, no, you were happy. Or you actually weren't happy because that time never existed. Um, or, but like, yeah, so there's that way that we do it, right? Like we, we, um, we have that. But I, I also see liberals do it in this way where it's like, oh, it's, you know, uh, our, our discourse is so toxic now. Like, oh, I just wish we could go back to civil, having civil conversations. Like civil for who? Yeah. You mean your feelings aren't getting hurt anymore? Because I bet there's legions of people who could be like, it was never civil. Also, it's just like historically inaccurate because like, let's talk about, you know, how shitty Alexander Hamilton and John Adams were to each other, right? Like they shat upon one another. And like, it's like, so it was like when, I'm sorry, like this whole idea of like, oh, we need to have civil discourse again. It's like, Discourse has never been civil. Um, so get some perspective. But, uh, but, it, but it functions in the same way as it's a callback to a thing that never existed, but held up as a standard for which we are now supposed to achieve. And it's just like, it's so, it's so, uh, <laughs> it's so insidious to expect people to meet a standard or to hold people to a, sta- a like a fictional standard, and I there's a there's a pain in that, and th- that in and of itself is kind of a suffering because it's just nonstop failure. But again, it's just not grappling with reality, and it's just you know nostalgia is a lie. It's always a lie. You know, I miss when my kids were babies. I miss those babies. Uh, if I had a baby again, I would be dead. <laughs> <laughs> Like, you know, it's just like, uh, uh, I don't know. That's probably a dumb answer. I'll try to. Not, no, not at all. That, um, that like brought up all sorts of stuff. And even <laughs> as you're talking about historically, how inaccurate a lot of our uh, ideals are, you know, I think about our conversation around race and um, fucking Mike Pence talking about like Dr. <laughs> King. And the like yes. whitewashing of Dr. King. And if you look at just statistics of how he was perceived at his death, he was perceived as yeah. a radical. Like he was not a popular person with white people. We've just 
whitewashed him to the point where he is tolerable. And now we've created some ideal of him that didn't actually exist. Right, right. Or, or our, what we're actually, what we're actually, uh, yes, he was way more radical than how we choose to remember. And by we, I mean the white imagination, but, um, but also we did not accept him, you know, uh, in the way that we would like to remember that we did. Um, yeah, dead people are so much easier to deal with than alive messy ones. Right. Um, and yeah, when there was, this is way off topic. No, but I think let's do it. When there was, um, when the Kavanaugh hearings were happening and they kept talking about how, uh, Dr. Blasey Ford was, um, the perfect victim and you know because she's so smart and so like so well spoken and so like you know I I assume it's like also she never like worked as a sex worker it was white you know like all these things she's a perfect victim and if we can't listen to her then who can we listen to and it's just like but but she's alive (laughs) yeah you know what I mean and I was like that but I mean, she's still an alive woman, so we're still gonna have problems with that. Um, the only perfect victim is the dead one. Oh, which is a really dark thing to say, but it's something you just like. Your face right now is like I'm editing all of this. I am not actually. It's just like Terrible. one of those so painfully truth. And anyone who's attended a funeral knows that's true. Like the yes. shit we um, say about people. The shit we say about people, and it, I mean, it happened when um, Billy Graham died, right? We are like, oh, he was like a racial uniter. It's like, no, two times he had like, you know, integrated uh, rallies, but then he would go from there to have back to segregated rally. Like, it's just like, what are we doing here? which I think is a good question for all nostalgia. Just like, what are we doing here? And what are we doing to people? And uh, why are we, what, why are we expecting them to contort themselves into these false images that we have of who and what they should be and perform? Like, let's just let people be people and deal with that as it comes. Um, and, you know, warts and all. Yeah. I mean, you have to. Yeah, I think that nostalgia piece to me explains um, anger. God, I hate this phrase. Anger on both sides. One yeah. in my mind more justifiable. Like you talked about the like the psychological toll and suffering it takes on someone who doesn't fit into that like mythological ideal that is yeah. espousing um, in our nostalgia. Like. That is profoundly frustrating, I would imagine. I don't have to really deal with that um, because, again, I'm a cis, het, straight, white uh, white guy. Um, but then on the other side, like, I guess or would wager a guess that um, a lot of what Trump has tapped into is that sense of nostalgia and creating yeah. this false anger that we're not meeting these standards that never existed or this reality that never existed. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think, it's a sense of loss Let there people truly believe something has been lost. And, um, and that nostalgia chapter, I think I, I talked a lot about the, um, the farmer, you know, who feels like 
he's lost the ability to give his children something that he was given. But I mean, if you think about it, like, like he came out of the farm crisis of the eighties, right? Where it was terrible for farm, like mass suicides, you know, like it, it was, it was bad and it's going to be bad again real soon. Um, because of all the tariffs and everything, um, uh, the best time for farming has been under Obama. Um, so, but there is a sense of loss that everybody has. Um, and what they connect it to is, you know, something different. But I think Americans are really grieving something and we need to figure out what the hell that is. And, you know, and, and deal with it and stop taking it out on other people. Yeah. Do you have a, do you have a guess? Or can you wager a sense of what it is exactly we're grieving? I mean, our, our society has changed so much, um, you know, just even in the past 50 years with technology and um, some people have been left behind. And, and I just mean that in like a very material sense. We have rural broadband access issues, right? Um, and, and, and the culture happens in a different way um, than perhaps it did. Or, or perhaps it's not happening in a different way. We're just like made more aware of it through information. And I think... Um, there's this tension between who we want to be and who we are. Right. And then, and there's that tension, there's that dissonance and people get lost in between, but it brings, it does bring us back. Uh, I think it brings us back to these ideas of faith. Like as a nation, we believe we believe in something bigger than ourselves, right? Like collectively, 80% of Americans believe in God. And um, and when you tie that into culture and capitalism, um, I'm sorry, my son just yeah, came in to hang a sign on my door <laughs> that says mom's area, but it's like, a-R-Y-U and then my cat came in and so I was like trying to say something really profound and then uh, and then all of that happened and I realized I actually don't have anything profound to say maybe I just don't know what what we're grieving and maybe it's different for everybody but there is there are little towns that are closing up people are losing their churches schools are consolidating there is something material being lost um but um but that doesn't mean we need to revive it you know sometimes death is just a death and you got to deal with it and move yeah. on um can i keep you for like five or ten more minutes are you okay okay sure yeah yeah, no, yeah it's fine now it's that fine. the area is designated for you then uh... <laughs> Moms, are yeah, it's yeah. We're not going to work on spelling. No, no. Do, do you spell it Aria? Is he a Game of Thrones fan? Is that? Um, yes, I let my um, five-year-old boy watch a show about rape and dragons. I um, I'm not here to judge anyone's parenting skills, but uh, you may get some phone calls and CPS visits after this podcast airs. So. <laughs> I was um, what was I was thinking about the other day about how like. There was this time in American history where every movie was about how Sandra Bullock couldn't get a date. 
and it was like it was like the net was like look at Sandra Bullock she's a nerdy shut-in and we've got to like create a national crisis to get her out of the house and get a date and then it's like you know miss congeniality look at her she can't get a date until she gets her eyebrows waxed or while you were sleeping it was like well the only guy who will date her is in a coma and and i was but i was like wow look at how far we've come now we have write like strong female characters who still get raped but they have dragons (laughs) so We've come so far. I'm very proud of us. <laughs> that may be the most like fitting description of uh, our like current cultural and political reality. <laughs> right. We'll still brutalize you, but here, take this sword. <laughs> oh, geez. That, I, I'm not even trying to know how to like rally back from that point, but it is painfully I true. <laughs> I was... I was going to resonate with your um, your Sandra Bullock point and that there was this entire, it felt like every like romantically themed movie of the 90s was about a woman who was like almost attractive, but then she had to take her glasses <laughs> off or something. It's like, oh, like we saw past whatever personality quote unquote flaws there were or those glasses or that, that one hairstyle. Like it was, yeah, absurd. Right, right. Yeah, the makeover montage mm. where it's like, we yeah we, <laughs> we take off her glasses and give her a better outfit what's that um that was um um clueless you know yeah. um it's it's so many of those movies yeah where it's like you can be you're sure you're smart and you're strong but you're really ugly <laughs> Suck, sucks to be you but every single one was played by an insanely attractive actress. And it's like, even if I had looked like them in high school, you know, it still would have gone way yes. better for me. Yeah. The standards that were like projected out were absurd. Right. Um, right. I do. I want to bring it back and talk about one thing totally unrelated to this. Although this has been a, a, a fun rabbit hole to go down. Um, you had a chapter in the book that I just like, I found so like poignant and fascinating and also maddening at the same time, not because of anything you did. Um, but you're, you write about attending this rural ministry class. Um, and it was to me just so telling and interesting. Um, and there is a line that stuck out to me that I just would love to hear you just kind of unpack. Um, you said, I spent a lot of time trying to put people at ease with my presence. Um, what what was it about your presence and the values that were being articulated in that ministry class that made people so uncomfortable? Um, I took that class um, in, gosh, I think that was July of two years ago, um, so 2017. And then I um, we agreed to get divorced in September. So there was a lot going on for me personally. And so when I walked into that and when I travel and when I do reporting, I always try to dress in a way that's not going to get me noticed. 
you know what I mean? Like, I, I want to fit in. I want to code correctly for the space. And, you know, so I had tried to do that. I had, um, you, you know, and it's not guesswork for me. I know if I'm going to go spend a bunch of time with people who are uh, seminarians at Dallas Theological Seminary, I know exactly that world, right? I grew up in Jean Dallas. Jean skirts. Um, Back to the jean skirt. Jean skirt put that jean skirt on and it's a good thing they're so trendy right now now all we need to bring back is head scarves and colts <laughs> oh, back to waco um so and gun running you, you have a uh, gift for turning all these questions very dark which i appreciate like i thank you um it's a spiritual gift mm-hmm. yeah uh, truly i can tie anything to murder or Colts and guns. Um, but uh but no, so yeah, so I I mean so I wanna I and I, I so I wanted to caveat that as like I think some of it was my attitude. And I was trying really hard, but when I went in, it had taken everything for me to get that week. Like I had I, 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 you know, and what I mean, everything I'd had like to hire house cleaners, I'd had to make a week's worth of food and store it in the fridge for my family. Um, I had, it was, it was a like materially a lot of work, emotionally a lot of work, um, mentally a lot of work just to go on that trip. And then I knew I was going to a space, um, that would hit on some of my old traumas. Um, and um, so I was trying to be emotionally prepared for that, and uh, which is why I write in the chapter that I had been supposed to stay at somebody's house, but kind of on my way there, called a hotel and was like, no, no, no you need to give yourself some time to just watch forensic fr- files in a hotel room and cry, and uh, which was very good that I was able to do that. But... Um, so again, like a long way to just caveat. I think when I walked into the room, I had I was tired, I was frustrated, and I was just really scared. Um, again, because of all these, the way that the theology had hurt me and was hurting me, and was hurting my life. I knew I would be sitting in a room where I would be hearing it, and I wouldn't be able to question it in the way that maybe I would want to because I'm there as a listener and an observer. Um, So um, there was that. Also, I did ask a lot of questions um, and I was asking a lot of questions. I was asking things like, how are you sourcing this? How are you sourcing this? Where were you sourcing this? And I was fact checking while they were talking. So I think there was a little bit of that dynamic situation and I had had uh, a phone call with the organizers previously and explained the whole explained my whole book explained everything I was about to do explained a little bit of the thesis so I don't think they were under any illusions that I was coming in and was going to be like yeah like let's make America conservative again that um <laughs> so I, I don't I don't think that that was happening but so you asked like what was it about me when I came into that space it, uh, one I think it might be fair to say that I was coming in uh, with a lot of emotional baggage but we all walk through life with emotional baggage 
Yeah, and I should rephrase the question to say not even not about you, but about the space as well. I don't want to put the I don't want to put it on you. Um, Well, um, no, I mean, then I was going to pivot to them too, where um, I was also, um, you know, and I think I I was asking very pointed questions. And to be honest, they should have been asking those questions too. The students should have been. They shouldn't just be passively sitting there accepting it all. and not that it was, I'm not saying that it was all wrong, because there were some just really wonderfully insightful things that they had to say. You know, those those men know rural America in just a really intimate way and understand it in a very intimate way that uh, was laudable and insightful. And I really liked. And they were, you know, smart guys who know how to tell a story. But there was also something about the space that, very much self-selected towards agreement and didn't broker questioning. And um, that, that, that happens in those spaces. Right. Um, and so that when I was questioning, cause it was my job to question that tensions started to arise. Also, I was a single woman in that space and the only other single woman in that space she was all in. I mean, she was all in on the theology. I mean, except she was going to be a pastor. But other than that, she was all in on it. And yet she couldn't find acceptance there. And she was very frustrated about it. I, I wrote that in the book where she had been, you know, she had risen the, through the ranks of the military. And she came here and she's like, this is even worse, you know, that I'm getting treated poorly. Because at least there, if I did a good job, I could you know, uh, progress on merit here. They're just not even letting me be who I need to be. And, um, so there is, there is something about that space where it self selects and doesn't broker any questioning. Um, so I think that was some of the tension. Also, I don't think, uh, we should downplay what it's like to be a journalist in America right now. And the moment you identify yourself as a journalist, and journalists need to, you know, um, that it gets it gets really tricky. It gets really tricky. And this was, you know, this was mid twenty seventeen, and things were heating up, and there was um, a lot. We, you know, we were still having conversations about fake news in earlier ways. and, uh, and and so there was um, there's a lot of distrust that people have, um, and especially people in Middle America have. And so if you're coming in and saying I'm a journalist and I want to write about this, it doesn't matter, you know, if this is your land and these are your people. Automatically, that codes you as um, for some people. Um, a person they don't trust and question your motives. And also I think it's worse when you're uh, a woman and I'm sure it's worse if you're a person of color too. It's just, it, it creates tensions um, that tap into bigger national tensions. So I think there was a lot of that. Also, I wasn't coding in the way that they would want me to code, right? Like my hair was blue at the time and, uh, <laughs> oh, and I wasn't wearing my wedding ring was another thing. And I like, I consciously was like, should I put this on 
should I not? And then I was just like, you know what? No, deal with it. Um, and uh, so I, I, I didn't. And so, the, again, just being that body in this space. I will say, interestingly enough, after uh, um, after that, when I was going through edits on the book, I was so worried about that chapter. Um, and uh, I, if if you're a journalist out there listening, like I know you're not supposed to do this, but I just sent the organizers the chapter anyway to just kind of say, hey, heads up. And, um, you know, I said, if you see any glaring factual edits, I would change uh, errors, let me know. But, you know, but I'm not really sending this to you for changes. I'm just kind of sending this to you as like maybe a courtesy. And they were not happy with me. They were they were not happy. And I got this really long email with like a list of all the ways that I had messed up. And they were like, character flaws they weren't like there were like two factual quibbles um and uh which those changes i did make there, there was one where i was like eh, i think this perception issue but i made the two factual changes but then everything else was like character flaw flaws like presented as factual flaws and when i got that email i cried because i was like I can't do this. I can't do this. My whole goal here was to like, to have a conversation and to try to understand. And I failed and now they're mad at me and now everybody's mad at me. And I showed it to one of my friends who's a brilliant journalist. And first of all, she yelled at me. She's like, you shouldn't have done that. I was like, I know, I know. And she's like, second of all, they're the ones who failed at the conversation. And I was like, oh, you're right. Their whole goal is reaching out and their whole goal is to bridging across the divide. And I am the divide. I am America, you know, and, and so I'm part of this conversation too. It's not all on me. And, um, and so that gave me some perspective, but that was a really hard, um, that was a hard experience and a hard chapter to write. Yeah, it was, um, I think, it came across, but in a way that was really like, again, poignant and powerful. And at least that I, um, yeah, felt was, uh, one of the more, uh, I think enjoyable is not the right word, but, uh, just to repeat myself, powerful chapters right. in the book. Uh, right. No, it's clear. I snapped. Like, I think <laughs> when you're reading that you're like, Oh, something broke. And like, yeah, it did. Yeah. It, something really did. Because I think as I hope comes off in the chapter that I was suddenly well aware who was being expected to have the conversation and who was expected to do all the work and that wasn't them, you know, and that yeah. made me that put some things into big perspective. Yeah, I think it felt but, like um, it lined up with your life, like the forces that were like pulling you apart, like you went mm -hmm. to a space that condensed those forces in a week long yes. class yeah. and then endured it. Um, yeah. And the timing yeah. of it was almost like poetic and tragic at the same time. No, it was, <laughs> it was, I was, um, to cope at, there were points where I was texting friends where, um, I, you know, 
I uh, I was like, I can't believe they're saying this, or I can't believe they're saying this. And there were a couple times when they looked at me, and they're like, we're just going to have this conversation off the record. And I turned my recorder off. And, you know, some of the things that were said were like, you know it's not cool to say that. Yeah. You know it's not cool, but you're just saying it in this, like, chummy, chummy way, and I'm supposed to just accept it. Um, you know, they were like theological things, judgy things about other people and political situations so um you know it wasn't it wasn't too hot issue yeah but it was still just like you just want me to turn the recorder off so you can say a shitty thing about someone in the news Mm. like that sucks that sucks um and uh i don't know where it was going but yeah but it was like it was like that was happening and then i was like texting my friends and there was just like it was like all of this news was happening and all of this personal stuff was happening and all of this like and I think that's that was also the moment where I was like this all goes in the book because there's no way I can explain what I need to explain about this situation if I'm not also telling people how the personal and the political are entwined but one really funny thing is um and this is not in the book but like I started to chart out like major uh political crises of this administration and mapping and seeing how closely they mapped to like my personal crises. And there was a lot of overlap. And I was like, wow, that's so beautiful in a really stupid, horrible way. (laughs) It's it's a good thing. I have a good therapist and a lot of great friends, you know, and my best friend. (laughs) I appreciated that too. That was, uh, yeah. I could feel the comfort of the whiskey in your writing, which is something that I appreciate in writing. Maybe that means I'm an alcoholic. I just want to say, I mean, I'm not an alcoholic. I see a doctor and a therapist, all of these things. But there was just, it, because it was the deviancy of the yeah. act, there was comfort in that. So Drinking in a Christian environment is one of the most satisfying things you can do in life. Well, I mean, but like, we got to specify, you mean like fundamentalist yes. evangelicals because the Lutherans drink all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're just so free. I don't understand. I work for an ELCA organization and there is beer everywhere. It's beautiful. I know. I know. They're just like, you want to like get margaritas and talk about Jesus? I'm like, yeah, I do. But also what? <laughs> You know, yeah. it's so funny. My pastor just loves how excited I get about those things. I'm like, there's beer at this potluck. She's like, yeah, we've been doing this for years. Oh, <laughs> uh, it's the little things, though, you know? Well, I guess maybe those yeah. are the, maybe that's a big thing. I don't know. But I appreciate that. <laughs> it's very freeing to uh, yes. throw those shackles yeah. off and have a beer with Jesus. Right. Yeah. And it's so sad what you think is a rebellion. You're like, yeah, now I'm going to get a tattoo and drink a beer. Take that, parent. <laughs> I'm 36. I feel the same thing. Whenever um, I'm not currently a pastor, but whenever I was a pastor, um, um, people would like get really weird if that came yeah. up. And my like instant rebellion is just to drop an f bomb, but not even a oh, yes. not even a good one though. I would just panic in my own insecurity and be like, 
And then I just had a fucking Snickers. I'm like, that that wasn't even, like, it just sounded like that was the first time I'd ever said fuck That's in my entire so life. so aggressive to Snickers and the Mars Company. <laughs> you owe them an apology. Just, you got to get really aggressive about candy bars. It is. No, I've noticed this about pastors who are like, because people get so weird about them. And I get it. I have a profession people get weird about, too. But like it, like so, I get the desire to kind of just be like, "But I'm a real person, right? Fucking Snickers, and look at this IPA, cause I'm a cool pastor, you know." But like, yep, and tattoo. <laughs> I got the the trifecta. Of well, you got the, the tattoo. Whoa, this is swearing wild. beer and tattoos. Oh. That's the like. Oh, that's just like. I mean, calm down. Very broy pastor too. So now I hate myself <laughs> as I describe it, but. Right, right. And now it's kind of become a marker of coolness among religious types, right? So like you go to these churches that are these big mega churches and it's like, oh, the pastor has a scruffy beard and he talks about drinking beer with his friend. This place must be cool and progressive. Oh my God, look at the lights and the drums. But really when you scratch the surface, it's just the same old, same old. Yeah, it's a bait and switch. The theology being sold in a progressive package. Um, it's sad to me. Yeah, I would rather just have straight up bigots than coolly <laughs> slick, clever bigots, you know? Yeah. Um, I think I need to, um, I might need to wrap this yes, up. Yes, I was about to. Sorry, we kept. Did you uh, hear the whispers? Yes, for sure. Well, thanks. I appreciate you uh, hanging out for an extra few minutes. Um, yeah, thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs>